What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here from another pod. A lot of stuff to talk about in pop culture this week. Usher's halftime show at the Super Bowl. The return of Tokyo Vice for Season 2 on Max. The Taste of Things. The French film about cooking. Much anticipated. Finally out. Gotta get into that. And then just a ton of music. New EP from Little Sims. New EP from Shy Girl. New album from Zara Larson, and a new album from Kanye West and Ty Dolla Sign. Vultures One went long, went deep on Kanye, went went into all of it. So make sure you subscribe. YouTube.com/slash/nostalgiapod, Linktree.com/slash/nostalgiapod. See the links below. Get the pod any way you can. See the playlist, Best of 2024 Spotify playlist. Links below. Let me know it's good. Well, let's get into it. What's up? Welcome to Nostalgia. Dave here with my reaction to the Super Bowl halftime show from Usher. Usher, the latest Super Bowl halftime show with the help, assistance, leadership of Jay-Z and Rock Nation guiding the NFL into selecting and curating the halftime show, of course, preceding Rihanna last year and Dr. Dre the year before that. And, you know, Usher doing the Super Bowl halftime show, honestly, it's a no brainer. Honestly, kind of a shock that we haven't had this happen sooner. Usher is 45 years old, but his commercial peak, his zeitgeist peak, his relevance was the 2000s, of course. Uh, Confessions, a diamond selling album. I believe it's the best selling R&B album of all time for a good stretch of time in the 2000s, Usher was arguably the biggest pop star in Western music. So it makes sense that he would do the halftime show because he has the catalog to back it up and, of course, the talent. And I thought that was a pretty good halftime show. Overall, it was basically what you expect from a Usher show, and it really, I think, delivered on that. Early on, I thought some of like the audio mixing was a bit um, uneven, but throughout the whole show, consistently... The camera was really focused on showing you Usher, like, first and foremost, having him really occupy and, like, own the stage. And a big part of that is, of course, capturing Usher as a dancer, but also even more granular than that, just the movements and the shapes and the gyrations that he does with his body and parts of his body. Like, that, that is the Usher experience, and I think they did a really good job of capturing that and showing that. Uh, the start of the show is a bit... Uh, a bit surprising to me just because I wasn't expecting him to go so far back with the early song, especially like the opening number, but, you know, doing Caught Up and You Don't Have to Call, definitely kind of throwing it back there. And this show really picks up, though, once you have Alicia Keys drop in for a quick duet. They do My Boo. Funny enough, they pitch-corrected the opening note from Alicia Keys on the YouTube version you can watch now, which is not how it actually sounded live. Funny how they did that. Either way, though that was pretty good. A lot of good jokes about Swiss Beats watching very carefully about how Usher was dancing with his wife. But I think that like really commanded like this stage, the two of them together harmonizing, you know, doing a very famous big song. And I think that then then I think from there, you know, you kinda we kinda get into like a lot of uh you know, kinda bigger songs. We got you got a bad and Loving this club, and he really runs through a good medley. It's a good like dozen tracks overall, and you're know, kind of throwing to like the fun section with uh, Jermaine Dupree cameo, kind of introducing it. Uh, Will I Am briefly showing up for OMG, and then Usher coming back out with like the costume change, 
on rollerblades, rollerblading with other people. And I thought that was, like, resplendent. Like, that was pure showmanship. I thought the rollerblade shit was amazing. And having him do OMG with that actually I think was a really good fit. That was pretty cool. Uh, he didn't play DJ Goddess Fallen in Love, which is from the same era. But I guess, you know, thinking back, it was a song I expected to hear. But thinking back, you know, that's kind of the more EDM era of Usher, which, of course, is not the most popular of the Usher eras, but one of the more recent ones. And OMG kind of fits that same mold. So I guess maybe it was a bit redundant to play both those songs. I suppose that makes some sense. Um, also, it leaves you opportunity to throw from OMG keeping the EDM train going for a second, introducing Little John doing Turn Down for What? Of course, his famous feature on the Bauer song from 2012. That was a throwback for me. I thought that was pretty epic, honestly. Um, <laughs> really, really fun. And then, of course, unsurprisingly, you have Usher and Little John jump into Yeah as the closer. You knew you were going to hear Yeah. It was really just a question of was it the first song? Was it the last song? Um... I expected it to actually be in the middle, but I guess, you know, looking back, it makes way more sense that it's his biggest hit, um, you know, post-Confessions. But Confessions isn't big enough and loud enough to be a closer. So to do, yeah, at the end was pretty fun. And, of course, Luda, Ludacris showing back up, big fro. Uh, he sounded great. His flow was fantastic. Luda's not, like, a super active rapper these days, as we know. More of a Fast and Furious actor these days. But he can still bring it doing the classics and i thought he did good and obviously there's some really funny and uh pushing the limit lyrics for a national television broadcast that they got in there so i think that was pretty fun good ending and i think just the like acknowledgement of uh, atlanta culture and how usher helped mainstream that uh which is you know what he said at the end um pretty cool and it's a nice callback to everything with the rollerblades and just kind of the fashion that they were doing in there and the Atlanta marching band reference points that they had um, as like the window dressing to some of the sets. So I think it was a pretty, pretty good show. I don't know what more you could have wanted for a Usher Super Bowl halftime show. Um, again, I thought the audio mix could have been a little better in the beginning, but Usher himself really brought it. I thought he was really, you know, really attention grabbing, you know, despite being 45, he still got it. Um, reportedly Justin Bieber had been offered to join the show and he said, no, you know, we don't quite know exactly the details of that. It's kind of some tabloid reporting. So like we haven't heard too much about it yet, but I wasn't expecting to see Bieber there. Obviously the Bieber Usher connection is very storied, very important to the career of Bieber for sure. Um, I kind of feel like Bieber one day will just do the halftime show himself. It'd be great if he could bring Usher out for that. Obviously we'll see when that happens. But I don't know. I feel like Usher's, or sorry, Bieber's almost too big of an artist and would have kind of been distracting to Usher, to be honest. Like, I'm actually happy that there was no Bieber because, you know, Usher's bigger than all the artists he was around. And I don't know, like, think about when Coldplay had Bruno Mars and Beyonce show up. We don't think of that as the Coldplay Super Bowl anymore, do we? Not that Bieber was going to upstage Usher at his show, given how it was going, that was not going to happen. It's not to that degree. My thing is, this could be a bit distracting. Focus it on Usher, you know? Um, also, what song would they have done? Would they have done Baby? Is that why Bieber doesn't want to do it anymore? Because that's a song that he, he is so far removed from. I don't know. Would have been cool if maybe, like, Young Jeezy was there. That would have fit in as well, but no time. Um, actually, reportedly, this was, I believe, officially, this was the 
longest Super Bowl halftime show, Usher was able to negotiate like two extra minutes as well, making bumping that to like 14 or 15. So that's notable. Um, yeah, so pretty good. I, and of course, the question we ask every year is, what's next for the Super Bowl? What are they going to do? For a long time, Rihanna was one of those white whales. And of course, she did it last year. Uh, Taylor Swift, of course, comes to mind. I'm not sure if that's in the immediate future, given the close proximity she has had to the NFL this season, as we all know. That'll happen one day. We know that. So let's kind of remove Taylor from the equation. Maybe Jay-Z will do it, given that he's in business with the NFL and helping help curate this. I suppose that's possible. Would they ever pick a another rapper after Dre? I guess they probably would. Jay would make a lot of sense. Be curious to what degree that kind of set would be. Will Beyonce come back for a third time? Who can say? Um, Bieber one day makes some sense. I don't know. Does Adele make some sense? Or Ed Sheeran? Maybe. You know, they're probably not as flashy. You know, The Weeknd, who I thought did a good job with the Super Bowl, he was not as showmanshipy as, say, Usher or Rihanna were. So that might be be a bit of a more mixed thing. I don't know. Also more traditional, who can say? Um yeah, I mean ultimately we're kind of running out of like A-list stars to do. I think we've largely moved beyond like throwback legacy bands, thankfully. Now there will be some new legacy bands that are kind of in the mix, I suppose, like a Pearl Jam or something. Those don't personally excite me that much, but they would probably work and fit the bill, so Ariana Grande, also, just because of her vocal uh, abilities, would make a lot of sense to me. Um, I bet that one probably happens this decade. I'd lock that one in. Um, but yeah, in terms of who it is next year, it's really hard to really hard to say. To be honest, it's hard, it's hard to get a feel, you know? Um, yeah, but let, let me know. Leave a comment. Who do you, who do you want to see do the halftime show? It's just, it's hard to really, like, think it through sometimes and come up with anything new to guess beyond who we've guessed with for years, you know, but I feel like Usher was perhaps under, under thought of in the mix for the Super Bowl halftime show. And thankfully he got his chance and he did a great job. So there's probably people we're overlooking as well. So let me know. How'd you feel about Usher's Super Bowl halftime show? How'd you compare it to the recent shows? To me, Dr. Dre is still the very, very top of the recent stuff for sure. But let me know. And for more music reviews, music reactions, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of The Taste of Things, the new French romantic drama, historical romantic drama film from Tron An Hyung, starring Juliette Binoche and Benoit Magimel. This is a film that was the, on the Oscar shortlist for Best International Feature Film, but f- and famously was the French Film Board's selection for the Oscar over Anatomy of a Fall, Justin Triette's film, of course. And yet, they would probably take that decision back, given how uh, strong Anatomy of the Fall did the Oscars, getting many nominations, including Best Director and Best Picture, despite the fact that it's not in the mix for Best International Feature Film. And then kind of shockingly, The Taste of Things, which of course has been very warmly received since it premiered back at Cannes last summer, where Hyung won the Best Director Award, The Taste of Things was actually not selected for a nomination for Best International Feature Film, to to a big surprise. So uh, that story definitely ended in in the manner I think we kind of didn't expect. Nonetheless, the film is finally 
uh, releasing, you know, starting to expand in the United States on Valentine's Day. And obviously I had been anticipating it just because I'd heard all these good things about it and knew of its uh, famous quote-unquote selection over Anatomy of the Fall, which kind of is reminiscent of when Portrait of Lady on Fire was not selected by France and Les Miserables was uh, submitted instead, you know, a few years back. Either way, I think The Taste of Things is really good. Um, I had never really seen a movie like this before. This is a period piece set in 1885, really at one location, this uh, manor house kind of in the countryside. We don't really know if it's relationship to the, like, the town it's around, but it's this manor house where we spend all our time. And we're spending it primarily with these two characters. Uh, Dodan, played by Maggie Mel, who is kind of the uh, like the man of the manor. And uh, Julia Pinochet's character, uh, Eugenie. And the two of them cook together. Like that that's their thing. And uh Dodan is a famous like master like gourmet chef and he works closely with Eugenie, who, you know, lives in the manor, lives at this ho his home. They are not married, although they are romantically involved and also working very closely together because even though she kinda serves like directly as a cook, quote unquote, under him, it's really more of a partnership, even if uh Dodan seems to be more public-facing in terms of when they receive guests and people have people over and things like that. So kind of an interesting dynamic. But what makes the taste of things really stand out is just how the movie, I think, films and treats the preparation, the creation, the cooking, and the eating of food. i never really seen a movie like this before. Uh, it's been compared to some movies in the past, like Babbitt's Feast, but I mean, I haven't seen those movies, so I can't really make the comp, but let me know if you uh, have any thoughts on that but the movie's kind of painstakingly patient in how it shows like that that prep of watching just master cooks like get in their bag and make these elaborate you know multi-course dishes with all these steps and of course it's 1885 cooking so we're watching like in the home like true genuine cooking uh you know on, on various stoves and in various fire pits and the techniques, like, it, it all looks very genuine on the part of the actors as well. I think to some people, this movie might come across as a bit indulgent just because there's not a whole lot of, like, plot progression in the traditional sense. There's not a whole lot of, like, hard conflict, to be honest. But it it's a really, like, warm, like, tender movie. And, God, it'll make you hungry watching it. I gotta be honest. Like, I certainly got hungry watching it. Um, and... It's just kind of done in a loving way, and I was able to, I think, appreciate it by the fact that I'm not, like, a foodie, per se. Of course, I love to eat, but, like, I I don't have, like, a passion for, like, extravagant dishes or anything like that. And it's not really a foodie movie, either. It's more of just, like, a connection and a dedication movie, as it, the romance between Dodan and Eugenie is, like, just as important to the rest of the movie. And, of course, they kind of take on uh, this young girl, Pauline, who clearly has a lot of acumen as a chef in terms of like tasting flavors on the spot, and they want to kind of train her uh, as an apprentice to become a master chef because they see the talent in her. I think that, that stuff, all the stuff of Pauline, is very enjoyable. Um, it's very fun, very warm. But I think you're really here for the relationship between uh, Eugenie and Dodan, which is really funny for a meta reason because Juliette Pinoche and Benoit Maguimel 
used to be together. They actually have a child together. They haven't acted in a movie together since, uh, I believe it's like the late 90s. So this is kind of a homecoming for them later in life. And they have great chemistry together. I think Maggie Mel has a pretty great presence, uh, who I've never really seen before. He has a pretty great presence as like a really dedicated guy, but he's not warm. He's not toxic. We're not watching the bear in this, you know? And then, you know, she just has kind of like a steely presence that, you know, I think people who have seen her before would be familiar with. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a pretty cool movie um, just because it kind of stands out for its uniqueness. I think the the relationship and where that goes was definitely uh, intriguing because it's just kind of unique in its uh, setup. It's kind of a unique relationship situation that the two of them are in together. Um, I think the ending scene, the ending, you know, 10 minutes is really strong. Um, not to, I don't really want to spoil too much of what happens, although there's not a ton of plot. I think the overall highlight of the movie is kind of the opening set piece, and you, you'd call it a set piece, but it's really just watching uh, Dodan and Eugenie and some of the kids with them preparing this elaborate meal for Dodan they have with their friends upstairs. And it's like action quote unquote as you watch them cook and then it's like transposed with dodan and his buddies just talking about things talking about food as well like i think that's kind of like the shining highlight of the, of the film and if that scene doesn't really connect with you you're probably not going to be too into the movie but overall pretty cool film i'm happy i saw it and yeah let me know what did you think of the taste of things did it stand out just kind of a unique movie like I, again i never really seen food and cooking portrayed in this way before obviously there are cooking movies there are cooking shows but this movie kind of had like a painterly way about things that stood out to me what stood out to you with a taste of things let me know and for more movie reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up welcome to nostalgia dave here with a review of tokyo vice season two back on max this show has been away for about two years of course got a lot of fanfare when it came out with michael mann uh, as an executive producer directing the pilot very exciting and the show is back of course starring ansel elgort and ken watanabe this is a show i really loved back in 2022 i think everything that was cool about tokyo vice continues with season two i'm very excited that the show is back and ultimately what makes it so cool is that you know obviously it's one of the first like full-on Hollywood productions of its kind to really film in Japan and reportedly the reception to season one over in Japan was so strong that some of the uh, guardrails and difficulties that the production had with filming with season one were less present in season two so they had even more access to filming out in, in public areas which is really cool. Um, so I'm really excited to see more of that. It's really fun to like recognize locales when you're watching a show set in a place you don't live after all. And yeah, I think like ultimately like, like all the hallmarks of the show remain and they're just so cool. You know, like it's a journalism show, of course, about Jake Adelstein, real life person who's a producer on the show in the 90s, the first non-Japanese person to work at a major newspaper in Japan, Jake Adelstein as a journalist on the beat, of course, in the 90s, pre-smartphones, and his uh, interaction, his uh, presence, his location in and around the activities of the Yakuza. 
And of course, you have Ken Watanabe's character, Detective Katagiri, who's very focused on Yakuza. And in season one, more interested in preserving the delicate balance that exists between the law and organized crime in Japan. And season two, a lot more focused on taking down the Yakuza and more interested in directly going after them as new uh, leaders are coming in with a more hands-on approach. Of course, Samantha, played by Rachel Keller, remains, who, working at a hostess bar in season one, now running her own bar in season two, of course, in league, in business with the Yakuza, specifically the uh, one of our two factions we know, the Chihara Kai group, and Sato, you know, her former confidant, lover-ish character. Sato is now kind of managing, uh, you know, his gang's relationship with Sam's business. And it'll be interesting to see how they continue to interact with uh, this new thing in between them professionally, right? I also quite enjoy uh, Emi, who is Jake's uh, editor at the paper. Not a Japanese person, but a native Korean in Japan. There's just so many, like, disparate, like, interesting things with the show. And also, I think notably... By having Polina die at the end of season one, which we spend some time with in the season two premiere, uh, of course, Sam's friend, fellow hostess, and also Miyamoto uh, being killed, Katagiri's you know, colleague over in the police department, you kind of have two re- recurring characters from season one off the board. So there's room for, I think, more to be shown. And we'll see like where that goes, notably in the premiere Katagiri has been officially taken off like the Yakuza beat, quote-unquote. Jake has also kind of been told to like stay away from things, and I think there's a really fun like false start in that premiere where we get the VHS tape kind of like cold, like dropped over to Jake, like turned in. And of course, it's outing the Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, some kind of, uh, you know, a bureaucrat uh, being in the presence of Polina when she gets killed on Tozawa's boat, of course, Tozawa, the other uh, Yakuza faction. And we think we're going to get all this thing, and like Jake's going to do this muckraking paper where they're going to expose some stuff. And then there's, of course, a fire at the newspaper's uh, office. And unsurprisingly, the tape and all the copies are destroyed, and they're back at square one, square zero, you know. But, um, you know, episode two in the premiere, the two-part premiere, ten episodes this season, two more than last time, uh, you know, Jake going on a loose adventure uh, with a motorcycle uh, thieving gang and kind of like telling their story and being directly involved in a, in a bike jacking and stuff. I'm really curious to like see just how expansive it gets. I think from some of the advanced reviews I read, we're going to learn more about Jake's other colleagues at the paper who were pretty small characters in season one, uh, to be honest. So that'll be cool. Obviously there's room for things to get messy with Jake uh, becoming intimate with Tazawa's girlfriend. I'm curious to like what degree we see the two Yakuza factions continue to um, interact. Of course, Tazawa is apparently gone. He hasn't been around for months in the show's timeline, hence why Jake is now with his girl. Seemingly, though, uh, Sato's side of things are willing to take over more territory, going after uh, Kabukiyo, taking it back from Tazawa. On the other side, Tazawa's uh, second, who's like kind of zoom control. The guy looks great, by the way, with the slick tack, slick back hair, amazing like character design. Um, 
he wants to like kind of cool the tension and just leave each other alone so they can both make make their money. I'll be curious like what side of those things went out. Is Tazawa actually gone? Is this some kind of ploy? I'm curious. I'm sure it'll come out. Katagiri going rogue, also very exciting. Of course, we love Ken Watanabe. Just uh, amazing presence as an actor, as I think we all know. He's great, and he looks like absolute shit to start this season because he's you know living away from his family, who are basically in hiding due to Yakuza threats. And you know he's been approached by other people in the department to have a more hands-on, direct confrontation with the Yakuza, you know, with from law law enforcement. So. A lot to uncover there. Of course, you know, you get the scene of Miyamoto's uh, death being revealed, and of course, that not being actually a heart attack as they're lying about, etc. A lot of like intriguing like threads here, but ultimately, like what makes Tokyo Vice so cool is it's not a like it's not a white savior story by any means. You do have two white expats in the story in Jake and Samantha, but really, it's kind of just a show about like work and like society dynamics and just a great character show. And I think, you know, again, some characters removed from season one, no longer on the show in season two, because they've died. There's just a lot of runway for this show to really spend time with those characters. And I think that's what really makes the show cool because obviously the production design and the setting have a lot of interest and looks, the show obviously looks amazing, you know, literally set in Japan film there, but because it's a character show and it's not so much focused on being an action show between the two Yakuza factions trying to take each other out, that's not what the show is about. It's really just a drama about these characters trying to find their way in their time. And I think the fact that it's set in the past also really grounds it because I think a lot of the drama feels a bit more real, you know, like all this stuff with the Yakuza uh, being a bit more open than they certainly are today in terms of the way organized crime can function. Um, it's pretty interesting. So I'm a big fan of the series. Um, I'll be curious how the Sato character continues to develop. Of course, now bringing in his younger brother who willingly wanted to do some work for him. What is the degree of that? Of course, Sato's new uh, boss, the like second in command of his gang, recently released from prison. That guy seems to be more of a hothead, more of a violent type. Sato is much more cool, calm, and collected. I'm sure the heads will uh, uh, butt over that. Uh, We can bank on that, I'm pretty sure. So uh, that is interesting. And yeah, I think, um, of course, Samantha's um, running her own club is really a whole new dynamic for her as a character. Bringing in her old friend Erica as well. I'm sure I'm curious if there's anything more to that one. Um, Yeah, big fan of the show. I think it's just kind of really nails what it's going for. And I really hope people watch it because this is a show that I think everyone's pretty worried about getting renewed for a season three. Most of the Max originals have been canceled as like the Max original brand is kind of, uh, you know, being cast away over at Warner Brothers Discovery. In theory, this is a show that could just be an HBO show, to be honest. I just don't know if it's easy for completely different production companies to like you know take it on etc and you know distribution and whatnot i don't know if that's even realistic but i really hope people watch it because after everything they've invested again making the show in japan it's not a cheap show to make um the reception is good so if it does get canceled it's not going to be because people don't think the show is good so uh we only can cross our fingers about that but in the meantime, I'm going to enjoy the ride. I'm very excited the show is back. Let me know what are you most excited to see in Season 2 of Tokyo Vice. 
And for more TV reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Little Sims' new EP, Drop 7. Yes, the seventh entry from Little Sims in her Drop series of EPs over the past 10 years. Drop 7 coming out. Uh, of course, following up her last album, Though No Thank You, which came out at the end of 2022. And of course, on before that, sometimes I might be introvert, famously winning the Mercury Prize over in the UK. Little Sims, I think people know at this point, one of, if not the most impressive rappers out of the UK. She also stands out for just, I think, being especially unique in that respect, where she has very unique flow and delivery as a rapper and is an impeccable taste in beats, in song ideas, and really stands out as someone who is not the most mainstream of UK rappers to this day because she doesn't make super commercial, uh, you know, mainstream leaning music, but clearly like leading the way in terms of artistic intent when it comes to, you know, British rap and finding, you know, I think quite the range of genre to play in. With that, I think of a song like, uh, gosh, what, what is it? Uh, Off Gray Area, her big uh, breakout album, 101 FM, which is, you know, almost like a bit dancey. Like, she has quite the range of genre that she can play in. And Drop Seven, I have to say, definitely uh, surprised me in terms of what it is and what it isn't. You know, this is a short EP, obviously, seven songs, 15 minutes long. And. Ultimately, I think the biggest takeaway with this is that production is not from Salt, her longtime collaborator, who's done all the mo- all the recent work. It's produced by uh, Jack Wobb, who I'm not familiar with. But Simbi really kind of gets experimental with the beats with this one. And, you know, there's not a lot of bars on this. It's really kind of a showcase for the production. So... I think if you're a Little Sims fan, this is interesting release. And I guess in a sense, it's cool that like you're in between album EPs that you always make. You're like taking chances and kind of doing different fun stuff uh, outside that album context. I guess that's cool. I don't know if there's a lot here I necessarily want to revisit, but it's all kind of interesting. And like I said, it's really coming down to the beats, you know, like mood swings, track one. There's not many bars on that. It's pretty underwritten. It's pretty repetitive with the few lyrics that are in there. But that song, as well as really the most of the song, uh, most of the songs on the CP, it's really just a lot of percussion. Like that is kind of the focus of our production, and like how that varies throughout is kind of the most interesting thing. Um, you know, track two, fever. Again, that like really stands out. The percussion on the beat there, and you know, Simbi giving you. A little bit of non-English language, I believe it was Portuguese. She was referencing Brazil with the lyrics. Um, that's cool. I think the chorus is probably actually the coolest part about that song. Probably the strongest chorus on the whole EP because there's not that many to pick from, to be honest. Um, you know, the song SOS, again, the drums really stand out. Uh, I ain't feeling it, though. That one has, like, no words in it, you know? like the, And then Power. That one's only 55 seconds long, and that's where we get all the bars. That's her actually just doing a rap song. So it, there's quite the uh, dichotomy here. And then, of course, the last song, Far Away, no bars at all. It's actually Sims in her melodic singing bag, because why not flex on us? So that's a lot of different choices, a lot of different genres, a lot of different things in a 15-minute EP. 
is it any of it as cool to me as just a great rap cut off any of her last three albums? No, obviously not. Um, honestly, I thought the Drop Six EP that preceded this one also was a bit more interesting just because those songs, I think, just feel more like fully, fully formed to me. You know, again, though, like taking these kind of chances with the production, with the like song ideas is cool. Like I said, but I don't think there's a whole lot to really latch onto with this, which is also totally fine. Again, it's interstitial EP. Do your thing. So, yeah, big fan of Little Sims, big fan of her as an album artist, particularly Drop 7. I didn't find a whole lot to really latch on to, but again, it is pretty commendable for at least being interesting and intentional, obviously. So let me know, what did you think of Lil' Sims' Drop 7 EP? Uh, were you kind of so-so on it like me, like, you know, broadly appreciative, but don't really want to listen to it again? Let me know either way. And for more rap reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Shy Girl's new EP, Club Shy. Shy Girl, not the biggest artist, but certainly one who's got a lot of acclaim as a really interesting genre jumping artist out of england of course her debut album nymph from 2022 critically adored she released an ep since then now we get club shy and club shy definitely uh, was not what i expected going off her past sounds but is kind of exactly what you expect if you go off the title club shy this is a straight up club record and it is Bangers only. I thought this shit fucking rocked. I love this EP. The only issue I have with Shy Girls Club Shy is that it's short. It's six songs, 16 minutes. That's it. But man, these are all bangers. This is drum and bass. This is trance. This is house. This is like real, like genuine club music. And not that Shy Girl hasn't like made club leaning stuff, but I think people. We really thought of her as more of like an alt-pop artist. Think of the feature she has on the FKA Twigs mixtape Capri songs from two years ago. You know, she's like alt-pop. She's done some kind of like alternative hip-hop stuff as well. But like to do like true, like genuine club music, like in the European definition of club music, like real genuine stuff, really cool, to be honest. You know, track one, Forever, also featuring... My Girl Empress Of, who has an album coming out soon. That one's a huge banger to me. Um, I thought Fake was pretty cool. Mute with Lolo's a Y, I think is great. Um, Tell Me, you have Boys Noise production. Mr. Useless, you have SG Lewis production, like real genuine DJ acts, you know? And then the last song, Thick, I also quite like. You know, I think Shy Girl, the she, the, the hooks from her are like really tight, but ultimately like the the, the loops on the production with this really stick with you i think it's really pulsing up tempo high energy music really cool i would love shy girl to do like a full record uh with this you know i feel like i don't have like a whole lot to like really expound upon on with this just because it's a pretty short brief listen and my feelings are pretty like universal that like i thought all of it was really great it's just catchy it's uplifting it's fun and yeah she deserves a ton of attention I don't know if she's necessarily going to get a whole lot more attention making a club EP, obviously. But I think for those who know, they're going to dig this. Like, this is a fucking vibe, this record. So, shout out Shy Girl. I'm a fan. I remain a fan. Looking forward to the next full-length album from her. We're probably approaching that time in the next year or so. Exciting stuff. 
let me know what was your favorite song off club shy i think my favorite one is probably mute we'll go with but i really like them all let me know and for more music reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up welcome to nostalgia dave here with a review of zara larson's fourth album venus zara back little less than three years since her last album poster girl came out in 2021 and i've been a fan of zara larson for several years now i think honestly zara larson's the most underappreciated pop star we have right now that's that's i'd go out on a limb and say that she has a lot of great bangers she has really good vocal talent and she's got some really good songs and you know she's a monster artist in europe especially in her home country of sweden but still hasn't become that big of an artist in the United States. And, you know, I think on Venus, you can hear some of those compromises she makes from time to time where she makes more commercial-leaning music. But when I think the songs get a bit more creative, or at least a bit more interesting, there is a lot to them. And at least they have a lot of earworm qualities. They're fun to revisit, etc. And, and I think with Venus, just kind of jumping into that track list, Track one really stands out to me, Can't Tame Her. I think Zara is very vocally impressive on here. There are a lot of pop stars that aren't amazing vocalists, but they hide it with production. They hide it with uh, just kind of manufacturing things. But Zara actually can impress and show range with her singing, and I think you hear that right there. Uh, unfortunately, though, you know, track two, more than this was, I think this is just an example of like the perhaps inconsistency you get with some of her music where this is just a really dull beat to me it's pretty generic there's not like a lot to be excited about with it and then of course track three on my love produced by david Guetta. i mean david Guetta hasn't been interesting in you know 15 years shockingly that does not change uh with this song although surprisingly i guess the sped up version of the song that was already out has gone a bit viral shout out tiktok but to me ultimately this song is just pretty boring like there's there's not much more to say on it um ammunition though i think this song is great i think zara sings she's really kind of flowing kind of riding the beat like the the bass drums really hit on this the horns kind of pop in in the chorus and the chorus is pretty cool though it's almost a bit minimalist but like i think this is perhaps the best song on the record really like this one and then none of these guys right after that i also quite like i think a really nice like smart use of autotune to be honest, uh, I think the beat is awesome. Gave me kind of a, a nod to Swedish House Mafia's last album from 2022. Did not expect to hear that on a Zara Larsson album. And ultimately, just the hook is like really, really catchy. Like, this is good. And I think when Zara gets that really earwormy, grabby stuff, grabby music, like that hook on this song, that's when she really shines. Really like this one. You Don't Know Who You Love, I like this one quite a bit as well. The tempo kind of picks up like halfway through the song, and the song kind of like levels up. Really enjoyed it. Earwormy as well. Dare I say, like, I don't know, I got kind of like a Lady Gaga vibe on this. You know, I mean, they're very different artists, but I don't know, just kind of where my mind went. Uh, End of Time, you hear some violin for the first time. Uh, but once again, like an upbeat drum tempo, very nice. And like, like Zara's like singing on this. Like, she's she's really crushing it. Uh, nothing you know I thought this song has kind of too much going on with the production it's just okay but it was really a miss um, escape you know it's fun upbeat soundtrack though that one is it's a ballad but like I don't know like I think when Zara Larson does the more ballady stuff it's a bit more boring to me I really like it when she leans into the big bomb bass like the pop maximalist stuff 
I think to me that's generally her strong suit, and it's kind of opposite of what you get on soundtrack. Uh, then two more songs kind of close it out there, you know. I don't know if I heard anything that's gonna like approach anywhere near the highs of say Lush Life, of course, the biggest song of her career, just a certified banger that is now, you know, seven years old. Um, I didn't hear anything like that. I don't think the David Guetta song's much of a hit, to be honest, although the sped up version has gotten some traction. But she's an artist that I think is just kind of cool. You know, she's been around a while, but still only 26 years old. And I think there's still a lot of room for growth, a lot of room for career growth as well, obviously, especially in the United States. But like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm biased against pop bangers, especially the big tent pop stuff. And I think Zara Larson can give you the big tent pop stuff, but also back it up with like actual vocal talent and like interesting choices at times. So still a fan. I think Venus is a solid entry from her kind of in line with poster girl. And, you know, would both of those albums kind of coming in below uh, so good for me, you know, that big breakthrough album from her. So all in all, a solid entry. But let me know, what did you think of Zara Larson's fourth album, Venus? Did you like it more or less than her past work? What do you want to hear from her next? And for more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Kanye West and Ty Dolla Sign's collab album, Vultures. Technically, this is Vultures 1, the first of apparently a three-part album. Vultures 1 released on February 10th in the early morning hours. At the time of recording, it is available on Tidal and Apple Music, but not on Spotify. Of course, these things are subject to change. Of course, this is an album that had, I think, a fair amount of anticipation. There's been multiple listening events, including just the past few days. And this felt like a real album, a real project from Kanye in a way, unlike, say, Donda 2, which infamously came out in a very incomplete and clearly half-assed uh, format available only on the stem player that was not a real album release and unsurprisingly it never ended up getting finished despite what had been said about that vultures is coming of course at a time of great turmoil for kanye as a artist as a person he of course has been dropped by def jam his label for you know many many years of course due to his own uh doing of course saying anti-semitic things and in general just his cult of personality getting out of control and as a result vultures is coming out on the yeezy spelled yzy like yeezy like independent label under kanye kanye and ty this album does not have distribution as far as we know which probably explains why it's not on spotify right now i'll be curious if the success or lack thereof of vultures leads to kanye securing some kind of distribution moving forward i would not be shocked to see perhaps smaller companies such as united masters want to get back in business with kanye and yeah i mean ultimately i think people are still going to show up for his music even if we've kind of written off most of the things he says in public and outside of his music Kanye is a complicated guy he has said fucked up things for a long time. Even though he has apologized for the anti-Semitic remarks, I, I would hope he continues to kind of right those wrongs just because uh, he has said a lot of messed up things. That being said, you know, people are going to listen to the music. I'm going to listen to it. I'm not going to begrudge anyone who doesn't want to listen, of course, but I'm just going to get into the music from then, then on out. This, of course, is a collab album from Kanye. Of course, he's done these before. Watch the Throne with Jay-Z, Kid See Ghost, with Kid Cudi, not to mention the good music stuff like Cruel Summer, 
Ty Dolla Sign himself has also made some collab albums with Division and Jeremiah. And I actually think it's a great idea for Kanye to make a collab album right now just because thinking about how Donda went, thinking about how Donda 2 especially went, I think Kanye kind of needs like to kind of lean on someone to fill out some of those songs. And just bl- plainly speaking, having Ty Dolla Sign there to, via his singing, you know, occupy space on half of a song, sometimes more than half of the song, that does a lot of good because Kanye's writing has obviously been so inconsistent, so up and down, and I'd say more more down than up in the last five years, you know, really post, post Pablo, post Kids See Ghosts, really, it's been mainly down, and when you get like sharp writing sharp bars from Kanye it's a welcome surprise like it is on Vultures 1 when when those songs do pop up so I think having some kind of creative partner like Kanye has found in Ty I think it actually makes a lot of sense it kind of serves both of them well Ty also is someone who you know god knows was it 15 years now at this point has been a great guest been a great collaborator always fits well on songs with others so it makes no mis- makes it's no mistake that or no surprise that Kanye and him kind of fit well together and you know, I think a lot of the hype with uh Vultures 1 has kind of been you know regarding the snippets that we've been teased a very modern uh, way to promote music of course namely of course that would be the song Everybody sampling liberally Everybody Backstreet's Back by the Backstreet Boys when that was first teased by Kanye and Ty that got a lot of people's attention because I thought it was a really awesome uh, sample and sounded great. And it's uh, when it tore the roof off when it was played at the listening events. That song is not on Vultures 1. I'd imagine that is because that sample has not yet been cleared. And the Backstreet Boys probably realized that they can get a really nice check for that. Or maybe they don't want to be affiliated with Kanye at all and they won't clear it. Who can say? So maybe we'll get that with Vultures 2 or Vultures 3. Those albums are supposed to come out on March 8th and April 5th. I would say, of course, take that with a very grain of salt. If we never get Vultures 2 and 3, I would not be shocked in the slightest. So for right now, I think we should treat Vultures 1 as its own body of work. And it's a full body of work, 16 songs, 56 minutes long. And it feels it feels complete. It doesn't feel half-assed or unfinished the way Donda 2 did. So I'm very happy about that. But let's kind of just leave Vultures 2 and 3 to the side, you know. Also not on Vultures 1 would be New Body, which of course is a uh, song that's been leaked out in full years in the past, Kanye, Ty Dolla Sign, and Nicki Minaj song uh, that blew up virally, you know, in an unreleased format because it's really great. Amazing Nicki feature as well. And that song was supposed to be on Yandi or So Help Me God or some other unreleased Kanye album, Jesus is King 2, whatever it was supposed to be on. And it didn't come out. And Kanye apparently did ask Nikki to clear it for vultures, and Nikki said, no, the time has passed, et cetera, et cetera. I thought it was actually a pretty clever idea, given the fact that Ty is already on the song, to like bring that in and kind of retcon new body into the vultures experience. That would have been a really cool idea, because again, people like the song. We know the song already. Uh, if you if if you wanted it, you already downloaded it, it's not like it's not out there. Disappointed that Nikki didn't uh, say yes to that, and also she probably should have said yes to that, given she could have used a positive headline, given the Meg- Megan the Stallion disaster recently. Anyway, New Body is also not on this. But we do have, on Vultures 1, as I said, 16 songs, and there's a lot here. And if you look at the credits that we have, and the credits are not completely out there yet, but the credits we do have, it's a lot of familiar faces. 
uh, on the writing side after Kanye and Ty. We have James Blake. We have No ID. We have Sci High. We have Beam. We have Aunt Clemens. We have two beats from JPEG Mafia. First time him and Kanye officially collaborating. Very cool. This feels like a Kanye record. And I think also just kind of vibe before I get into the song by song stuff. Vibe wise, this is a darker uh, album from Kanye in terms of the vibe of the production, the sound of the production. But also lyrically, it's a pretty dark, you know, serious. And it's certainly the darkest and most serious stuff he's made since Jesus, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, also, I think Kanye sounds a bit self-aware of his current situation and how people feel about him, think about him, and the things that have happened to him, again, largely due to his own mistakes. He seems pretty aware of that on the album, despite you know still making a lot of Kanye-isms and some Kanye-ass bars and things of that nature. So all in all, I have a pretty positive takeaway on Vultures 1. I think it's pretty good as far as late period Kanye goes. Does this hold a candle to early or mid period Kanye? No, obviously not. But as far as like the late period stuff goes, there's some good takeaways. There's some cool stuff on here. I think the beats generally are almost always really interesting. There's some really good production on this. Kanye's ear for production and also ear for samples, as we know from some of the unreleased stuff. That's still there. And at least we can hang our hat on that. So that being said, let's kind of jump into the songs. All right, so as I said, you know, 16 songs. Right off the bat, I think it starts kind of quietly. You have the first song, Stars, with this notable, you know, background chorus. The second song, Keys to My Life, with India Love vocals. I think these songs are okay. Not really much to revisit on those. Track three is probably the first notable song, which is Paid, uh, notably featuring Kanye doing like a baby voice, a la Playboy Cardi. The Friday Night Let's All Get Paid part as a refrain, really stands out, sung by Casey from Jodeci. Nice pull from Ye there. And that kind of gets like dubbed over as the beat flips. And you get and you you hear, I think, for the first time, like like the Kanye production flair kind of showing itself. It's pretty cool. Uh, and then track four, which had already been released to this point, has a music video as like the second single off this album. Talking, talking features Northwest, Kanye's daughter. And I actually think North kind of spazzes on this. Like, it's pretty fun. It's pretty catchy. She's, I think, been out there at two of the listening events now, seemingly having fun. I think the easy comparison with this would be to Adonis Graham's appearance on Drake's For All the Dogs, of course, Drake's son. And I would say Northwest just makes a bigger impression. She is older than Adonis, so it's not, it's apples to oranges, but... Either way, I thought it was actually pretty fun, pretty amusing, and like pretty like pretty solid. Like it fits the song. Um, and then you have Ty Ty drop Ty Dolla Sign drop in, and the beat just completely flips, and like Ty just does his crooning, and it sounds great. Honestly, pretty cool song. I like it. Um, and I guess it's kind of cool that North is doing stuff with her dad. You know, not to get into the tabloidy stuff of it all, but you know, it's nice to see. I guess. Uh, back to me. I think this will be a polarizing song. This probably won't work for a lot of people. This has a sample from the movie Dogma featuring the voice of Jason Mewes, the actor. And I think the beat starts great. Ty sounds good. But then you have uh, Kanye doing this auto-tune and kind of repeating the refrain of the Jason Mewes line, which is about a big... Big booty, big breasted women dropping from the sky, something like that. Um, (laughs) 
and I guess like the lyrics from Kanye at this point, very reminiscent of like, I love it. You know, the song he do a little pump a few years ago, just kind of very juvenile, very crass. It's also very simple. Like he's not really rapping too much. Um, it's, it's kind of whatever, but then <laughs> you forget about those blah Kanye bars because Freddie Gibbs shows up gangsta Gibbs himself. And I thought, uh, Freddie sounded great. Obviously he always brings it. I like the Elon Musk bar he had there. That was pretty good. And he actually kind of fits it into the old refrain Kanye did from Jason Mewes. So all in all, I think the song is like pretty solid, but Kanye's the worst part of it. Um, Hood Rat. I think this song is okay. The refrain's just kind of grating. It's like kind of like an annoying beat, honestly. Don't want to revisit it. Do It. I like this one. Ty Dolla Sign, I think, really floating. I love the 06 Gucci uh, name drop there. Really fun song. A really n- another noticeable beat flip here. YG. Showing up, of course, YG and Ty have quite the history. Cool to hear them on a song together. Pretty cool. The next song, Paperwork, the production really stands out because it's like very like industrial, which to this point we haven't really heard on Vultures. Pretty nice feature from Quavo as well. Um, honestly, Quavo was pretty good on Donda 2. I thought the Migos song on Donda 2 was probably the best thing about Donda 2, which isn't saying a whole lot. But Quavo, once again, acquitting himself well on paperwork here from this point out now we have the best sequence on vultures the best sequence on vultures one starting with the track burn burn i think is a list late period kanye west this is top tier late period kanye this song fantastic you have ty starting it off incredibly groovy singing her body like a wild, wild west, so catchy, so vibey. And then Kanye actually raps. Easily the best bars he has on the whole album. And this song had uh, been heard in some form, of course, from the listening events. The 8 billion to take off my chains line, I think, really stands out. And ultimately, what, what this song makes me think about is how Kanye, how introspective Kanye got on Reborn on Kid C Ghost, which is now coming up on six years ago. And it's really nice to hear Kanye actually be incredibly self-aware, incredibly introspective and self-reflective about his life and his current situation. It's always very topical. And I think you're getting that directly on Burn while it also being an absolute banger because the beat goes and ties levitating. Like that, that song is fantastic. Easily the most fun song to revisit in a sense maybe it's because it's kind of straightforward like it's this basic song structure basic production it's not too out there but i think like it's this perfect execution so that's my favorite song on vultures that'll be on the best of 2024 spotify playlist see the links below for that follow that and yeah that song is amazing but as i said this is only starting off a really great run on vultures that run continues with the next song fuck some which Man, this is a crazy song. When you think of like Kanye in the production bag, you would think of a song like this. You have Playboy Cardi giving you two d- two different voices. Of course, we get Babyface voice Kanye- Cardi, which we know well. But then we also get the newer version of Cardi, which is his deeper voice that sounds a lot like Yeet. You know, the rage music, uh, modern rage music Cardi. You get both of those versions of Cardi on this song. You get <laughs> Travis Scott. And of course, you get Kanye and Ty. And ultimately, I didn't just the general hook on the song, 
I'm trying to fuck some right now. I mean, who among us? You know, we feel you, Ty. We feel you on that one. I think this song is pretty cool just because like the beat is all over the place, but in a really cool way. And then just vocally, again, it goes in many directions with Cardi, Ty, Trav, and Yay. Then from there, you have the title track, Vultures, which had been officially released as the first single. And this is a song that I mostly really like. I think it starts awesome. My only issue with the song is I think some of the first bars from Kanye are pretty weak. Honestly, pretty meh bars. Then you get Lil Dirk showing up. He's spazzing. He's fire on this. The beat gets like super orchestral. You know, you have these really nice bass drums, very maximalist, um, very Kanye-ass, you know, like orchestral production. Sounds really cool. Um, and then you get kind of, I think, the more like lovable dumb bars that we expect from Kanye these days where I don't know who I fucked last night. I got Alzheimer's, which is like you just kind of chuckle at the struggle bar nature of it, but it's still kind of funny. Um, and then the line that's probably been the most viral and probably polarizing as well is uh, how can I be anti-Semitic? I just fucked a Jewish bitch, which apparently has been tearing the roof off when that's played live at the listening events. And if that was the only thing Kanye had said about his anti-Semitic remarks, it probably wouldn't go over as well. Obviously, he said things in a more serious manner in terms of apologies already. Um, <laughs> I think it's like both funny and also kind of like... Uh, crass and unnecessary but either way i don't know and then after that ty is actually kind of spitting you know kind of doing like uh, hip-hop tie dollar sign so ultimately i think vultures is pretty cool and then after that tie part of course you have this like blade runner ass uh instrumental outro so a lot to that song i think most of it's pretty cool and then the last part of this four song run you have burn fuck some vultures and lastly carnival carnival starts with this like rugby slash european soccer crowd in the form of a choir doing this chant like that that's immediately where you get taken to in terms of the vibe in terms of the feeling but it's not a sample it's actually new new lines and you hear these like these these hooligans chanting head so good she honor roll like it's pretty epic honestly and then uh from there from the clouds Back from the dead, you have Rich the Kid coming out of nowhere to start rapping. And he actually sounds great. Connie bringing the best out of Rich the Kid. I mean, when was the last time we cared about Rich the Kid to this degree? I don't know. Plug Talk, New Freezer, it's been a minute, you know? Um, I think he sounds great. And uh, Rich the Kid kind of jumps in and repeats that, like, chanty chorus with the choir that we started off the song with. This song's very cool. The A bars, though, are just okay, again. But then Cardi shows up to kind of close it out for us. So ultimately, Car- Carnival, again, has a lot to do. I think some pretty cool touches. So I like the song. Uh, Beg Forgiveness after this. Um, this one's kind of interesting, kind of weird. Six minutes song kind of ends abruptly. It's all right. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I thought it was, like, kind of nice singing, but I don't need to revisit it again. Good Don't Die? I like this one because it's like Sung Ye. It's like pretty good for Sung Ye too. It's kind of his first time really doing a lot of that on this album. Uh, the second to last song, Problematic. As you can imagine, that's Kanye kind of speaking about uh, his situation. I don't know if he gets too personal on it. Like he's attempting to. It's kind of surface level stuff. But the beat at the very beginning reminds me of the very beginning of the Bound 2 beat. I think that's pretty intentional. Uh, you hear it immediately. 
And then lastly, you have the song King, where the refrain, the chorus of this is crazy, bipolar, anti-Semite, and I'm still the king. Which I guess on one hand you could take as kind of almost being flippant or not super caring about what people have said about him before. Or you can take it the other way, where he's saying that he's, what look at what he still continues to achieve despite what people say about him. Which I could get behind, but again, like, bro, bro, you said the anti-Semitic things. Like, we don't have to, it's not, it's not us, it's you. Like, just don't do that, and everyone will be more cool. So, like, I can't really get behind that per se, but, like, in terms of a flexing, like, mantra to a song, it's actually not bad. Uh, verse 2, he goes bar for bar with Ty. I wish we got more of that, honestly, because Ty is underrated for hip-hop bona fides, but he didn't really do too much of that on Vultures. Maybe we'll get it on Vultures 2 and 3. I don't know. Um, and kind of the last bar from Kanye is a bit of a shot at Kim K um, in terms of how they parent. So, yeah. 16 songs. I think most of them have interesting qualities to them, and I think that run of Burn... Fuck some vultures and carnival was incredibly special with burn in particular being just a a1 banger so pretty happy with it you know ultimately like i actually think there's more songs i like just kind of like on their own on this than donda thinking back you know like i think donda had some really big highs like hurricane like off the grid but donda's an album that definitely disappointed me I don't know. We're certainly in the Donda tier. Like we're not like approaching any other like albums better than that with this. But ultimately, I'm kind of okay with that because, like, again, where Kanye has been recently, again, due to mainly his own mistakes, his own misdeeds, um, I'll take something like this because there's a lot of intentionality. There's clearly a lot of effort in the production, and it feels like a real Kanye event again, and. For those of us who still are invested in that Kanye experience, the good and the bad of it, I think that's a pretty good takeaway. So, yeah, see the links below for our Kanye album rankings that we did a few years ago. It's about another 90 minutes on Kanye if you want that. Obviously, not ready to rank it just yet, having just heard the album earlier today. But let me know, what did you think about Vultures slash Vultures 1? Are you expecting Vultures 2 and 3? Again, we just got 16 songs. Do we really need two more? I'm not going to say no, but if, if they're fully finished and whatnot. But do you want more? Let me know what you thought. And for more rap reviews, more music reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. All right, that's going to do it for the pod this week. Next week, got to talk about the end of True Detective Season 4 on HBO. New films. We got Sony's Madam Web looking like a superhero disaster. Uh, we got to see... The car crash. We gotta see it. We gotta find out. Bob Marley, uh, One Love, the new musical biopic film starring Kingsley Ben-Adir as Bob Marley, and also a new uh, album from La Seraphim, one of my favorite K-pop groups. And I'm sure some other stuff might come up as well. So make sure you subscribe. YouTube.com/slash/nostalgiapod, Linktree.com/slash/nostalgiapod. See links below. Get the best of 2024 Spotify playlists. Leave a re- review on iTunes. Five stars on Spotify. Do the thing. Let me know it's good, and I'll see you next week.